so if you are a regular listener of the CTO studio, then you know that we have been discussing needs lately. And if you are a forum member in our seven CTOs community, you will find yourself in our leadership trimester. And this last few months, we've been looking at intention, like the different ways we can be intentional in our leadership. And so we are discussing needs, particularly your needs. What is the CTO's needs in the C-suite? How do they get them met? What happens when they're unmet? What's the impact on the C-suite when the needs aren't met? And this month in our forums, we'll be discussing how do you get your team's needs met? How do you know what your team's needs are? So Scott and Chris are joining us today to discuss what it looks like to build systems around needs, to be in relationship with our teammates and our the members of our organizations in terms of their needs. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne de Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Seven CTOs is a global collective of CTOs helping each other become world-class leaders through our peer groups that meet once a month, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentorship. We carefully assemble our forums with seven like-minded people who are at similar and adjacent stages with their companies. They help each other solve challenges unique to technical leadership roles. Each forum gets assigned an executive coach who leads conversations of emotional support and growth as well as holds space for difficult conversations we need to have sometimes. Check out 7CTOs.com and apply today. Mention CTO Studio and get a free strategy session with yours truly. And I truly look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to another episode of the CTO Studio. Today, Etienne and I are joined by Chris Peterson and Scott Graves. Yeah, my name is Chris Peterson. I'm the CTO of Scientist.com, a marketplace for pharmaceutical services here in San Diego, California. Hi, I'm Scott Graves of Scale Tech Consulting. I'm a longtime CTO. And uh, what I'm doing these days is helping people increase the size of their development teams and make them much better. Just in terms of a first thought. I'm curious, Chris and Scott, like what's the initial reaction when I start talking about team needs in the C-suite? When you talk about needs, it makes me think about what are the duties of a, a CTO? What do we owe the various people that we work with? Of course, we have a fiduciary duty to our employers, but we also have a duty of care for our team. It's important that we accept responsibility for whether or not the teams that we run are fun to work on, are advancing the careers of our um, team members, and that they have psychological safety on the job. So to me, like in a nutshell, that's what my duties are to my team. That was very well said, Scott. I particularly like the, the psychological safety. I couldn't agree more. I think that one of the one of the rules of thumb we try to follow here is we try to hire great people and then get out of their way. So um, a big chunk of my responsibility is to not get in their way. Like I, I try to make try to help create an environment where they can do their best work, where they can work on the things that they want to work on, where I'm not micromanaging them, and where they have the freedom and the safety to to make mistakes and to to fail because they succeed much more often than than not. And 
Yeah. So I think psychological safety, I like everything you said, Scott, but particularly the psychological safety part. Then when you think about that every individual has particular needs, are you both familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like we, there's physiological needs that we have, right? Food, shelter, et cetera. Then we have emotional security that we need. And then once we hit that, then we are, we can then suddenly work on love and belonging and self-esteem and self-actualization. So in the last month, the content Etienne and I wrote or talked about was what do we get when we think about the individual's needs in the C-suite through this lens, right? Through the idea of, hey, you actually can't create um, love and belonging until you have some emotional security. I'd love to hear how you both have established this, any of those inside of your teams. Like how does it go to create emotional safety inside of a your team or an organization or love and belonging? You know, what does it look like? And you could talk about all of them or both or any, none, but just give us some insight into how you actually acknowledge needs inside of your organization. It's a great, it's a great question. I think it's a very both natural and challenging at the same time, especially over the pandemic. So I don't have any sort of secret or any sort of silver bullet for it, but I do like to start every meeting that I have with two or three or five minutes to chit chat. Kind of like we started this podcast. We talked for a little bit. Everybody got a little bit comfortable and we told a couple of stories. You kind of file those stories away and you ask about them next time or you bring them up in the future or you ask about someone's mom or their their brother or their significant other and you, you file those things away and you make sure to ask about them again. Not because it's a strategy, but because you're actually interested. And I think that devoting the first five minutes of, of every meeting to stuff like that is very valuable, particularly through the pandemic, when you could ask about people's health and make sure everybody was still safe and that sort of thing. The, the only other thing that I would like to do is I end every, or I try to end every single conversation with people on my team with, what can I do for you? What do I, what do you need from me? What information can I provide? Even to the point where sometimes it's awkward, right? Like we have a five minute conversation and, and I called for a very specific need. I still end those with, what can I do for you? Is there anything that you need? And Usually it's a no, but occasionally you get a yes. And uh, I think it's it's valuable enough to uh, overcome the awkwardness. So one of the things I heard in what you shared was that you cultivate relationship as a way to acknowledge needs. It is a much more succinct way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. Scott, what about you? Brittany, that's a you know very broad question. And when it comes to, to managing your teams and getting the productivity out of them that they can't, like maximizing their productivity and maximizing the joy that they experience in the workplace, in one sense, you can think of it as it's your only job, right? Because as CTOs, and most of us come from an engineering background, a lot of us think about managing the teams and like creating the processes that create safety and security as like an engineering task, I'm going to implement a process or I'm going to, I, I don't know, issue a memo. But in reality, that's not how it works. It's more like, it's, it's less like being an engineer and more like being a gardener. What you need to do is you need to prepare the environment. And, and once you've prepared the environment, then those systems will like grow up themselves. Every team is different. And Every group that collaborates together is going to find their own groove and their own like comfortable way of working. 
And your job is to foster that. But to get a little bit more specific on even on just one topic there, let's just talk about physical safety and security. Now you think you might think that, wow, that's it's not exactly like there are bombs going off and fights breaking out in the middle of the office. That's not exactly what I mean by physical safety. Let me give you one example. I was working in an office one time and some termites were in the ceiling and like detritus was you know, like falling on this man's desk. And um it just wasn't a priority for office management. Like they had a million things to do and fixing that problem was last on their list. You have to be an advocate for your teams when things like that come up. And then also, what about the noise levels in the office? I worked in an office where there was a motorcycle dealership next, like right outside the office, and there was just noise all the time. We had to relocate those guys. And then... Of course, a recent trend in office design is these open landscape designs where everybody works on like a bench or a table. And those just things just don't work for me. People need a little bit of privacy at work. Honestly, they're not going to be working 100% of the time when they're in the office. So if you make it a norm that the people who work in the office are entitled to a bit of privacy and they're not expected to just be grinding you know, for eight hours without, you know, looking up from their keyboard, then you create an environment where you're telling the people that they, that your, your people that they matter and that they are important and they're not just a unit of production. So the physical spaces that people work in, the, how quickly you respond to their needs, whatever comes up in the office that might be bothering them, that, that communicates to them that, that you care about them and that their physical safety is important. Yeah, I love that you said that, Scott. I was thinking, especially as we were all migrating to work from home, the whole disparity became clear around people in more affluent neighborhoods who had Wi-Fi and people who maybe were commuting to the sexy downtown co-working space, but actually lived out in the boondocks or had a real a terrible neighborhood or environment, all that stuff got exposed, right? Because now you had your employees phoning in from bad Wi-Fi spots or just disappearing from meetings. And so I, I love that the consideration of physical safety is something that has been pushed to the forefront. I'll never forget visiting a shop, dev shop in Guadalajara about 15 years ago where that issue became really clear to me that the physical comfort and safety of the developers were just not a priority for the dev shop. And just the idea that people were sitting shoulder to shoulder coding. And I oftentimes I've been in Zoom meetings where you can tell that the person is under duress. They're in their living room or they are in their kitchen or, and there's the Western world, there's the third world, there's strong superpower economies, there's the weak economies. And so bringing up that idea of the physical safety is a big one. And I, I really love that you brought that up. Well, you're right, Ed, and thank you for expanding it to this new remote world that we all seem to will be working in for quite some time. You're right. You can no longer have as much control over the physical safety of your staff as you once had. For example, I was on a call today with a colleague who has a team in Ukraine, and we had a typhoon not long ago in the Philippines, which badly affected a number of our, our employees. So... 
in those situations, it doesn't matter if we make the sprint. <laughs> like, you, it doesn't matter if you make the sprint or not in those situations. So I, mean, I was CTOing a company two or three years ago who had a significant workforce in Belarus. And when the whole political upheaval happened there, boy, those developers were gone. They were protesting in the streets. And I am reporting back to my C-suite, hey, my developers are executing their the dem democratic right to protest in the street. The sprint is not a priority right now. Do you understand that? And it happened so fast that contingency was impossible, really. We couldn't really plan for it. But that as well as currently in a situation where I'm working with a team where, you know, the, the one developer's dad is basically in hospice and he's basically at the end of his journey. And Talk about all the things that affect people's physical safety and their safe and just their being. It's a, it's really an opportunity for us as leaders and as CTOs to care deeply about our teams and where they're at and what they need. And but that stands in such contrast to that pressure when we think business objectives and OKRs and the next deliverables and the pressure of the investor or the M and A. It's I find that I'm often in, in either of those worlds and very seldomly can I actually just be in both of those worlds in my mind. It's, and that's a, I find that to be very difficult. I think trying to be in both of those worlds is a, at least for me, a very common source of stress. You're, you know, you are trying to meet these deadlines, but you're also trying to nurture these relationships. And like you, over the pandemic, we had employees who lost parents or loved ones. And yeah, like you both said, the sprint doesn't matter, right? Like take the time that you need, take, go home, take care of yourself, take care of your family. And I don't want this to sound wrong. It's an opportunity for us to strengthen our relationship with these people because we, it's not like you don't want to make it sound like opportunistic because it's a terrible thing and we never wish it on anyone, but you can use that to, to strengthen your relationship with it. You can use it to express how much you care about these people as people. And that people over processes, people even over priorities. Yeah. Well, I love what you just said. And that was wonderful. And I just want to highlight and tie this back to the idea that I spoke about a little bit earlier uh, about your duties, right? So your fiduciary duty to your employer comes from the business objectives of that business, right? And the, the fact that you're engaged in commerce. Your duty of care for your team does not derive from that. It, it derives from the proposition that human life and the humanity of your workforce is a higher goal and is fundamentally, incontrovertibly more important than any business objective. If you start from that mindset, then you're not really going to have a lot of problems meeting the needs of your team. I think that's really brilliant. And it also begs the question of like, how effective can we even be in business and results and performance if our needs aren't met? So if we just skip that whole part, then we just have a lot of cogs in a system, not actually fully living into their potential as a cog. But if we relate to someone as human and that humans have needs, we actually have to produce something different in our relationship to create the result that we want. Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The businesses that we work for and the technologies that we create as you know, professional technologists, none of that 
springs up like fully formed. It doesn't, you can't just take the run book of your processes and expect software to come out. It is people that make software. It's people that make software. That's just the reality. And uh, if you take care of those people, then the business will thrive. And if the business thrives at the expense of the people, and there are businesses like that, of course, worker exploitation is not something that is unique to technology. But if the business is thriving despite the, the quality of life of the worker, then I think you have a duty to not work in that business. It, you, you could, if you're working in an ethical business, the, the basic expectation is that the people will be taken care of. And if the people are taken care of, then the business will thrive. It all connects together. I, I think that's very well said. I know that uh, a lot of us in the CTO group started our careers building software and building products. And at some point we, speaking for myself, I know at some point I transitioned out of that. I don't, I no longer build the product. I now build the team that builds the product. And my job is to build that team. And I think that's a, another way of saying what Scott just said, right? Like we need to focus on making sure that, that team is healthy and happy and functioning. And that's where I want to, and I, I hope I spend most of my time so that they can then go and build the product. Wonderful point, Chris. I think that one of the thorn, when it comes to the, the needs of your team and the health of your team, I think one of the thorniest things that we have to navigate as CTOs is when the needs of the business come into conflict with the needs of your team. For example, back in the 90s, it was a normal thing to go on death marches. Have you ever been on a death march as a programmer where you had to ship? And just I have. 100-hour yeah. weeks. So in that situation, being a good leader and being a good CTO means protecting your team and not allowing that kind of nonsense, even if it means there are consequences for you from your boss or other areas of the business. If you're not ready to show up and demonstrate that type of character, then you don't need to be in a leadership role. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, it was the late 90s going on those death marches. That was a bad time. I hope, I wonder how common that still is. Probably is in some places. I think that the, the challenge is that I was in a, a fully remote company. I was a CTO there for a while. And one small gesture they made was to, they did, because they were fully remote, the all hands was very important to them. So they did a monthly all hands. And that was like 60 people around the globe. And what they did was they would not pick the same time every time to suit, for instance, North America or where the HQ was. And it was very interesting as a C-suite to wake up at two in the morning or four in the morning or three in the afternoon, whenever, to actually consider the needs, but then to empathically and collectively all suffer the consequences of living on a globe. And the team not feeling like I'm always the one who has to wake up at three in the morning, but wow, my CEO woke up at two in the morning or stayed awake until four in the morning. And then wasn't just hi and goodbye, let's do it quickly. But Chris said, I was, I was actually really touched by this, but even if it was three in the morning for the CEO, he would do the banter. He would show up awake, alert, and completely present with the team in a way that I think really demonstrated uh, that 
he understood their needs to be respected for what they were doing as well. And I'm talking, if you were the QA in the Philippines, and I mean that with the greatest respect, sometimes we think, oh, it's over there and they just have to get with the program. But the egalitarian approach in that remote first company, and I think this was even before the pandemic, was really amazing to see. And it fostered quite a impetus with the C-suite to always ask ourselves, if this is what we're doing for time zones, what's happening with work environment? What's happening with the families? What's happening with dial-up and all that kind of stuff? So the, I guess the point, the, the point I was dropping in there was just the, it's one thing to have, yes, uh, uh, an obvious force of evil against an obvious force of good with uh, the examples we mentioned, but there's so many subtleties where we just miss out on the opportunity to actually be open to what our teams need, not to mention our own needs. That, that brings me to, I think, a really um, interesting question is we all can assume that there are certain needs that everyone has, right? Their work environment, physical safety, these, the materials or platforms to do their work, all of that. But when you think about your actual experience, and Chris, I love the way you talked about what used to be product and process that you were in charge of, right? And now it's actually teams and people. How did you learn how to become aware of people's needs? Did you create, a, is there a specific system that you used? Is there something that you got really good at in terms of connecting with people? Like how does a leader actually learn the needs of their teams that are just the everyday needs? That's a, that's a really hard question. In some ways, I'm a little bit lucky. I, I cheated a little bit in that we've been doing this for 15 years, right? So this wasn't the, you know, thousand percent growth that, that was pointing to with Scott's companies and congratulations on that. We've experienced very solid growth. We had, a, we had a small team for a long time. We were very close knit. It took probably 12 or 13 years to get me out of that programming role and into more of the people management and the team roles. No, like I said earlier, I don't have any sort of silver bullets, but I do think that taking the time and not packing your schedule and making sure that you don't have someplace to be right at the end of the your one-on-one, that's a little, like maybe a little tip that can go a long way is you need to have, make sure that you have that time so that when you ask if somebody needs something, if they say yes, you don't just run off the phone. You need to be able to sit there and, and listen to it. And then you need to be able to act on it. So yeah, I think not packing your schedule. I think uh, setting aside time, giving yourself space to to have that friendly banter at the beginning of the meeting and allowing yourself to think of that as work and not, oh, this is, this is us just wasting time. You're not wasting time. You're developing relationships. You're uh, working within you're developing your relationships with your team. So yeah, and then those silver bullets, all of it is, all of it is time consuming, all of it, but it's great. It's also like the best part of the job. Yeah, I guess that's, those are most of the tips that I have. You said one earlier that I think is really powerful that is incredibly obvious, but you also told us that you literally ask people, what do you need? And then I think the bonus is then ahead of time, knowing that you're going to create space for whatever they say. Yeah, I think, I, I hope that's the case. For my team, I hope a repetition is probably powerful in this regard. I've never told my team that I'm going to ask this at the end of every call, but I do ask it at the end of every call. So I'm sure people aren't surprised when they hear me ask. And people do occasionally take me up on it, which is exactly the point. That's why we do it. Yeah. 
Scott, before you answer the question, this actually speaks to something Etienne and I talked about last time we were talking about like our specific needs. Do you think people don't always answer because it's it means something about them if they have needs? Were you asking me, Brittany? E- either of you. I just I noticed I, I want to take a divergent from my first question because I think what Chris said was really interesting and whoever wants to answer. Definitely. There are lots of things that people on your team are probably not going to talk to you directly about. So what that means is that you have to be observant. For example, I had one employee who was falling asleep at his desk every day and not performing the way he normally did. And it turned out after we were able to have some very frank discussions that he had an opioid addiction that he picked up through an injury that he had. And so I told him, like, you don't need to push yourself like that. If you have this addiction, let's just take the time that it's, that you need to get clean and then we'll move forward from there. And, you know, that worked. So that one is, was pretty obvious, but you're going to see other small patterns like and even you, you can even do this remotely. If you're reviewing check, check-ins periodically, which is something that I do, maybe the code quality is going down. Maybe the check-ins aren't as frequent. Or maybe they're happening at three in the morning. You got to keep your ear to the ground on stuff like that, because that can indicate that there's some kind of uh, problem in the employee's life. And maybe they need to maybe, maybe they need to take a few days off. Yeah, I agree. Being observant is it's one of the hard skills or it's one of the things that, that you just have to get good at. I think the Brittany, to your original question, I think you're both absolutely right. There are things that people aren't going to talk to you about and people will schedule a meeting to talk to you about because I think people worry that, oh, I'm going to schedule a meeting to talk about this. I'm going to be, you know, seen as a complainer or this is making too much of something that's really little, which is, I think, one reason that one-on-ones are really important. Having these standing meetings with as many people as you can, right? Very frequent one-on-ones with direct reports and then skip level one-on-ones with everybody else on the team at a less frequent level. Having that standing meeting, people are more likely to bring up those things because they didn't have to schedule a meeting to talk about it. It doesn't mean that they've made a, they've made something out of what was nothing, which it's never nothing. But I think people feel like by scheduling a meeting, they're making a bigger deal out of something. So having those standing meetings, I think, is a is a very helpful tool. And this is super general, but if you had to say, do you think that there's a stigma around having needs? Do you think that there's a particular way we view people who are very clear, hey, here's what my needs are and this is what I need to operate? Or do you think that's actually as part of the culture we've created organizations where it's powerful to say that? Any comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, I have some thoughts on that for sure. Yeah, at least when I was coming up as a young programmer, and I still think there is plenty of this around, you want to have to feel like you're secure in your job. A lot of people will put on the the aspect that they're they're low maintenance, they never cause any problems, they get their work done on time, and that means that there's not going to be any any trouble at work. That sort of way of thinking about work, I think does come from like schedules and like performance reviews and things like that. So what I think you can do to combat that and make people much more much much more forthcoming about what their needs are is to create an environment and maybe even actually use these words and say, your job is only part of your life. And th- this is not the type of company that def- the, that wrecks people's lives so that they're productive at work. And that another thing that I tell my staff is that you're not 
a, a machine that's just like a unit of production and your the your production will be consistent all of the time. It's an expectation that your productivity and your performance will vary over time depending on circumstances. So just bringing that up and making that part of the discussion will make people more forthcoming about their needs. Yeah, I, I have a question around that because I had a situation which comes to mind right now where a someone who was a lead engineer in my, on my team and had become a key, I would say he was starting to architect certain aspects of our system. Actually, it was Chris, it was when we were starting to move more towards Ruby. He was actually a proponent of certain design patterns and I started speaking out more clearly about these things. And he started sharing his need with me to play a stronger leadership role. And I think we had just adorned ourselves with the chief roles and chief titles. Like I will be the CTO and you'll be the CEO with the co-founders. And he somehow had it in his mind that he wanted to be the chief architect. And for him, it was a need on his career path. It was on his road. It was for him, it was meaningful. And, and I will never forget how uncomfortable I was with that. And it wasn't so much that I was worried about the title or about the thrusting him into the role of leadership like that, because I felt like he would have the respect of the team. He was pretty young, but I just remember how uncomfortable I felt with that need that he had. I, I couldn't be with the need if I could use coaching language. It was hard for me to just be okay that one of my key people was pushing for something that everything was going to be okay. I actually thought that at that stage of my career, I thought that, oh, sh what, what happens if he leaves? What happens if he starts applying for other jobs? And I started feeling some anxiety around him just voicing to me. Probably it was probably pretty casual in a one-on-one. -on -one, hey, I'd love to be the chief architect one day. And that set me off. Yeah, I can understand that reaction. I think when you tell us that example, the first thing that comes to my mind is maybe separating out wants and needs, right? Like I don't, I would not consider a title to be a, a need, at least not in the way that we've been talking about them, right? Needing to, to move into a leadership position, that might be something that I would consider more of a psychological need, but a title is just words on paper. And, and I think somebody can move in that direction and you can fulfill the, their sort of psychological need and their need to progress in their career without getting at a specific title. Yeah. But then am I going to put him down and say, let me explain the difference between needs and wants. And uh, yeah, tactically, I don't know how much that helps you, but, uh, but yeah, I might actually consider doing that. I probably wouldn't use the, I probably condescending to say what you're calling a need is actually a want, but I, I probably would go back with a, you know, title is a, is words on paper and let's move in this direction. Let's make sure your career is pointed in the right direction and that you're able to on a day-to-day -day basis, express yourself and perform the job functions that you want to perform and that we as an organization need. And that will result in you getting to the title that you want. But getting that tomorrow is, is it might not be the a possibility. You, what I'm getting from this is you are super cool and calm and collect when key people come to you with their needs. Oh no, if it was me, I would freak out. I'm super calm and they come to you. Ah, okay. Okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, that's a interesting anecdote that you brought up there, and it's it highlights one of the important or key needs that um, all employees have, 
which is to understand how their job is going to advance their career and ultimately be as beneficial for them as it is for the company. And I find that one of the most powerful tools for that is written professional development plan. And I think that every person on your team should have a written professional development plan. And when I say that, I don't mean that you write it and you give it to them. That is a negotiation. You talk about, they talk about what their aspirations are, and you talk about what opportunities the company has for them to, to meet their goals. And then you write that down and you work that plan together. So negotiating ahead of time is a great way to make sure that you stay ahead of people's needs. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing that, Scott, but I'm still struggling with how do I show up in a way that helps me be my adult, resourceful self when, you know, take need and then need plus X plus Y plus Z multiplied by the days of the week. It's Right. I would submit that the reason why you had that reaction, and far be it for me to psychologize you from 15 years ago or 10 years ago, however long ago that was, but probably the reason why that hit you so weird and it was, it didn't sit easy with you is because it came as a surprise. You didn't expect it. This is not a person in your mind that you thought maybe fit in that role. And they started expressing their desire to go into it. And now you have anxiety. Oh my God, can I actually provide this opportunity mm. for them? But if you had negotiated it with them and you had sat down and said, actually, what do you want to get out of this company? They might have said at that time, I want to be a, an architect or a lead. And then you could have said something like, we don't have those slots for you right now. But as the company expands, let's continue that conversation. Right. Yeah, but but you're, there's still a little there's still a little segment of time between hearing the news and giving an adult response. And I'm talking about that in between where I am rattled, slightly frazzled, yes, caught by surprise. And in that zone, how am I dealing with it? And I think that's where I, oftentimes I hear someone's needs and I feel an instant weirdness about it. And, and I just don't know how you guys show up to show, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying. Everything is okay. We're going to knock this out the park. Everything's cool. Do you want to know why in that little stage in between you're reacting? Please. My assertion is that because you're hearing their need as opposing to your needs. And so you're reacting because it's you're feeling like it's encroaching on what you think you need or what you think the business needs. So you're actually not digesting their needs outside of your own. That so is practice might be first digesting their just simply without having anything to do with me. This is this person's needs. Got it. Let me get curious about why or for what. Yes. And, and that is a thousand percent spot on. It's hard for me to just be with someone's expressed need without it somehow stirring the pot of my own needs. And, and sometimes it's not just corporate or how does this mess with deliverables or uh, team culture? Sometimes it's just, I want to, under the cover of darkness, get you out of that country. Or I can't be with that much stress because I, I want to help or I want this. Or how does this, what does this mean for these goals? Yes, I do think that it's high fives my needs. So maybe all three of you can just jump in and, and help 
therapize me, Scott. Okay. I don't think that there is a any type of Superman ideal leader out there who, when caught flat-footed with something they didn't expect, just acts exemplarily in all circumstances. So when things come up like that, that that's just a matter of like personal growth and self-discipline. I don't think he's any shortcuts to that. But if you're building your department correctly and you focus on heading off needs, you focus on negotiating instead of dealing with people's needs in the moment, you can minimize those circumstances, right? That, that's what I do. I try to minimize the circumstances where I'm put into an awkward position where I feel bad about myself because I feel like that this person has a need and I didn't meet it. Or this person has a need and I can't meet it. Avoid that as much as you can by building great systems. I think that's, that is great advice. I think I strive to do what Scott just laid out. I know that I do get caught flat-footed occasionally. So I would layer on to, to that strategy, that relationship building that we talked about earlier, right? Like I think we will all get caught flat-footed at some point. And being able to fall back on like a reservoir of trust and a relationship that you have with the person. So if you don't react the way that you wish you had, it's not a one-off interaction that they're then going to judge you by. It is one interaction of thousands or hundreds or, or whatever it is. And then they're able to view you in that context. So I think the strategies for not being caught flat-footed, or that's, that is something we should all work on. And then also... In parallel, make sure you have those relationships so that when you do get caught flat-footed, you can fall back on that. And we've all got caught flat-footed at, every single one of us. I've had people who I thought were doing great and happy just throw their resignation letter on my desk and then read me about the right act about what a terrible manager I am. That If you work in this business long enough, that's going to happen to everybody. Just you have to take it as an opportunity for, for personal growth and you have to take it, take it on board. That guy was right. I was being a terrible manager. The outcomes are the most important thing. If your team says that you're a terrible manager, and if your team says that you're not meeting their needs, then that's true. That's not a debatable thing. They're the ones who know that what their needs are. So your opinion about whether or not you're meeting their needs it does not matter. I'm a big proponent of model leadership, that we model the way we'd like to see our teams act in certain situations or how we want them to show up. How do you feel you both are in your, like knowing your needs and getting them met in the C-suite? How does it go for you? That's a struggle, Brittany, because I came up in that same culture of pro. Remember I said, oh, employees often think that their best way, way to get their needs met is to just show up as like never causing problems. That's doubly true for executives because we're so bucks supposed to stop with us. We're supposed to be the person with all the answers when it comes to our particular department. And I struggled with that for many years. And I got into two occasions I can think of situations in which were, in retrospect, abusive situations where I was being taken advantage of by the companies that I worked for. And if, that's, if that happens, then you're not going to be happy. And that's going to flow down to your teams and no one's going to be happy. So you do have to give your per yourself permission to have needs and wants and boundaries. You have to establish effective boundaries for yourself. Yeah, it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I find there's this sort of strange asymmetry in my head in that I really am not good at and don't like to express my needs to the C-suite. Yet simultaneously, I very much like it when they express their needs to me, you know, clearly so that I can help. 
and I, I realized that there's that I should be doing that as well. And I, yeah, it, it's a, I guess that's a, a area of personal growth or an opportunity for personal growth, being able to more clearly express my needs. Cause I do very much enjoy it or not enjoy it. I appreciate when people are able to clearly um, express their needs and then we can resolve them. We can work towards resolving them. Maybe they're not immediately resolvable, but we can move in that direction and it's helpful. So yeah, if you come up with any silver bullets, I'll take them. What do you think is uncomfortable about sharing needs? Both just like what we've been conditioned to believe about sharing them or for yourself, like what needs are comfortable to speak out loud? So usually a CTO job is a pretty high pressure job. You look like lots of deadlines and lots of not knowing whether or not the thing that you just made is actually going to work and make money for the company. So there is an awkwardness around asking for time off, or I've always had a lot of problems asking for time off, not being want to be, not wanting to be viewed as an absent leader or a person who they're the, you're the one who's supposed to care the most about like the production of the product. And you took too many days off or you might think you're, but you know what? A lot of times that stuff is completely self-imposed, right? And your unwillingness to express your needs stems from a lack of trust in the people that you work for or some unrealistic expectation of, of being some sort of super person CTO. So uh, the best way to combat that is just to have frank and open discussion with your, your colleagues in the C-suite and find out what real what their expectations of you really are. Yeah, I agree. I think there's also this sort of like this seductive idea of being indispensable and of feeling like if I know everything that's going on and I am able to fix it, then I'm indispensable. And in, being indispensable is it's and it feeds feeds your ego. It makes you feel good. It doesn't make you um, a good leader. So I think that is a you know that's an area where you, you need to discipline yourself. I need to discipline myself uh, to to let go of things. I, I hear people in my forum talk about letting go of your Legos or letting other people play with your Legos or give away your Legos. I forget there was some saying, and I think that that's a discipline we all need to or I need to work on. It's something that you can't be a good leader if you're involved in every single decision. You need the people on your team to make those decisions, to own those decisions, to feel ownership over the product and the result. So yeah, I think being indispensable or feeling like you're indispensable, no one's indispensable, but feeling like it is one of those traps we can fall into and keeps you from expressing your what you need. Yeah, I think it just landed for me a bit, just listening to the two of you express how hard it is to voice your needs to the C-suite, i.e. to your boss. Scott, great example about just time off or, and I wonder if our direct reports feel that way. For us, it's no, share your needs. I'm here for you. What do you need? What's up? One-on-ones. But then really that environment for them to share their needs is, does it really exist? Or is it just the system of doing 15 fives or one-on-ones or whatever and um, thinking that we're going to hear what they need, but then really we don't. Yeah. How much of that is a sort of false sense of security? I think this gets back to, we all get caught flat-footed occasionally. We all get caught surprised. It doesn't matter how many times you ask somebody what they need. Sometimes they're not going to be comfortable sharing it or sometimes they might not even know. It might come to them in cold sweat the night before, and then they wake up and throw the resignation on your desk. It, yeah. So 
I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but it is definitely possible that we get lulled into a false sense. Yeah, I, I wonder if the two, two words that come up for me is vulnerability, intentionality. So of course, at seven CTOs, we've been working on being intentional about our relationships, not just upstream, but downstream. And so, yes, setting the intention for the relationship. Listen, I am for this relationship to work. You're my VPE. This is what I need from you. This is what makes me happy. This is how I work. This is my boundary and sharing that stuff and being intentional about it. And then maybe within that container to be able to then, as Britt said, model the leadership that you want from them by yourself disclosing some of your needs downstream. Is that that's exactly possible? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's 100% possible. Can you just say that's brilliant one more time so I can it's, clip it's that brilliant. into the... Yeah, it's brilliant, Ed. It, it really is. And I think it if, if you're going to expect your team to, to be vulnerable with you and tell you what their needs are when it might be a little embarrassing then you have to be vulnerable with them and you have to show up as authentic. And that honestly, in my view, is one of the hardest parts of leadership is trusting your teammates on the executive team and your reports that they're good, that, that it's safe. Like it's safe to be vulnerable with each other. That's extremely difficult. And I think is something that you develop over long years of figuring out who you are and what's okay and what you're embarrassed about and not embarrassed about and what's okay. Rit, do you think in our roles as executives, if we model vulnerability to our direct reports, just saying that makes me feel unsafe because I feel like being a leader, we have to lead. I think where we get stuck in our humanity is that when we're in a particular role, there's automatically stories and narratives about who we're supposed to be in that role that conflict with the thing that we're trying to do. And it's all made up. Like, we did not come to this planet and then the CTO is just here. We made it all up about who they should be and how it should go. So ultimately, we're just at the odds of two different things we've made up. And it's choosing which one am I going to be a victim to or not. So if we believe that vulnerability is actually the key to relationship and creating what we need with our team, then yeah, I think it's expected that you're going to have to be uncomfortable to create that level of vulnerability by you being vulnerable. It's It would be such an odd thing. And I'm sure a lot of people have been in this situation, especially as we started learning more EQ skills and emotional intelligence and bringing that into the workplace. I'm sure there were a lot of leaders that were like, be vulnerable and were like stone cold. You didn't know anything about them. And we know how that goes. It actually doesn't create safety. So the only way for your team to feel safe and vulnerability is for you to. And the only way for you to is to practice it. So kind of you have to execute before you're ready. Yeah, absolutely, Brittany. So the things that you've been saying are make me think about instances in my career where I've not been vulnerable and kept things to myself. And it's just caused huge problems. Like one thing that I'm really embarrassed about is that I need approval. I need people to tell me I'm doing a good job. And intellectually, I consider that a bad character trait. Why do you need the validation of other people to, to know that you're doing a good job? Oh, I don't know why. I just need it. And so over the years, I have actually gotten more and more explicit about that need. And like literally telling my managers, if I do a good job, I need you to tell me because otherwise I'll get anxious. And managing down 
the way that you can use that vulnerability to be to be a, a team builder is to just one time I was in a meeting and I was just feeling bad about where the demo went. Like it was a bad demo. And I thought, oh no, this is not going to show up very well on the stoplight chart. And so I said to the team, I'm actually having some anxiety here and I'm, I'm afraid that we're not going to get the, get this done on time and, and, and hit our release date. And I'm just having anxiety about it. And to my surprise, the team rallied around me and was like, what would you need to do? What would, what could we do to make you feel better about this demo? And uh, we talked about it and Actually, there were some small changes that we could make that we did that made a better showing. But if I hadn't expressed myself or I'd simply been, this demo sucks. I go out there and we're going to have to work this weekend. That, that would have been a bad outcome. But because I was able to say, look, I'm afraid, right? They, they reacted to that, not like what's going to happen with the product. And what I love about that is, is my own response to someone's vulnerability. You can't help but step into someone's vulnerability and their need, right? You got to be an absolute robot to be unaffected by someone expressing their needs, either for acknowledgement, uh, acceptance, just to be safe because you're afraid of something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our humanity and our authentic selves are the best tool that we have in our toolkit to get software shipped on time, as weird as that sounds, right? Because software is built by people. And people are built by software. Eventually. I don't know how we follow that. That was really well said, Scott. Yeah, I love the, the example that you gave of modeling and tier. Your earlier point, you had said you had talked about how you talk with your team about the fact that nobody's a cog and you don't have a basic unit of output and everybody's output goes up and down over time. I think that's another opportunity for modeling, right? Like we do, we do at least weekly check-ins with the team. We talk about what we've been working on for the week. And I always make sure that I'm giving status reports as much as I'm getting status reports. And if I haven't had a good week, just go in and say, I haven't had a good week. This hasn't been a, this hasn't been a productive week for me. This didn't work out the way I wanted it to. I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't get enough sleep, whatever it is. And I make sure to do that whenever it happens, right? Because it's safe. Like we all understand that people aren't robots. They aren't, you know, cogs and they will go up and down and they, I want them to see me do that because I also have good weeks and bad weeks. Really great, Chris. I actually have a question for you, like a follow-up question for you on that. So the, like the way that you show up at work and how you model behaviors you want to see in the workplace is super important. But how does that scale? Like when you get two or three layers of management, how do you make sure that every one of those layers and every one of those departments is creating a safe work environment for the people in them? Yeah, that's an excellent question, right? I think the the most important, it all starts with hiring and promoting, right? I think you, you need to promote people that, that reciprocate that sort of human, that humanity, as you said. You need to promote and reward people who exhibit that humanity at work who are able to build relationships. I think skip levels are great. I think for checking in with individuals, but also just checking on the, the health of your organization in general, right? Because this gives you a sort of set time where you can just check in and make sure that people's teams are functioning the way that they want them to function. They don't all have to function in the same way, but each team is going to 
function the best way that team can function. When that goes awry, I don't have, that's something that we've luckily been able to avoid at this point. I don't know how you get that back on track other than coaching or maybe mixing the teams up a little bit. But yeah, I think hiring and skip levels and rewarding that sort of relationship building is probably the best answer that I have so far. How about you? How how have you done it in your organizations? Everything that you mentioned, right? I'm a big fan of skip levels, but if your team is like really large, those are going to be really rare. So there's a, there's a limit to their effectiveness because you only have so much time. But what sort of, so I just, there's certain things that you can look at. Like what if one particular team has a lot of turnover? And that's something that we should probably investigate. And psychological safety is probably going to be a factor there, honestly, because most people quit bad bosses. When the productivity of a team goes down, don't necessarily assume the answers because they ran into a hard technical challenge. You need to talk to that manager. And then other tools that I use for larger teams that I find effective, and one that I've already mentioned is making sure that everyone has a professional development plan. I love artifacts. I love processes that force people to negotiate their wants. Because if you get the wants negotiated, then you know what they are and you're not going to be surprised. I think that is, as usual, very good advice. We, in our organization, we don't lean on or make as much use of those sort of written professional development plans. That is, I I love the idea. I think there are certain risks. Uh, You have to be careful when you're writing them to make sure that the goals are written in such a way that they are robust over time, even when the the goals of the organization may change. And that could definitely be done. But that's what we've done is done that more through, you know, relationship building and talking through what people's career development looks like, what people want to do with their career. And then that might have a a bit of a scalability issue, as you mentioned before, right? Because it it relies on how much you can keep in your head and how many relationships you can keep straight. But that's worked for us for a while. Similar solution, different implementation, I would say. Yeah. Another technique that I use is when I'm having my one-on-ones with a line manager, I'll be, I'll ask them like a bunch of pointed questions about the, their team. Oh, what is, what's Rick like to do in his day off, right? Or how's this person doing? I'll ask them like personal details about people on the team. And if the manager doesn't really know anything about their team, then they're probably not, you know, watching their, watching their needs very well. That's a really good idea. That's a really good idea. One, one thing that I would add to that is when I was earlier in my career, I would, I would shy away or maybe. I shy away, but get uncomfortable about salary discussions and negotiations and such. I feel over the years, I've gotten more comfortable with that. And they really, those are really a good opportunity for talking about career development. And even if you can't give people what they want, it is an excellent sort of opportunity to talk about what they want, what they need, where they see their career going. And it gives you a chance to, to communicate how you, th- what you think they need to do to get there. And that, to your point, really is a negotiation. It's not me telling them what they need to do. It is me expressing the needs the organization has and, and trying to figure out where they want to grow to meet those needs. So I've found that to be what, something that I used to find uncomfortable has turned into, I think, a very valuable conversation. So if we zoom way out, the kind of like key aspects of this whole conversation are inside of an organization to know that we are meeting the needs of the people we work with. We first have to relate to them as humans with needs and then be in open communication and be modeling the thing we actually want to see. Vulnerability, courage, clear transparency of where we want to go, what our future looks like. 
any any last thoughts just inside of this conversation? Is there anything we haven't said that's, oh, I'm dying to say this about needs and our team's needs inside of organization? The only thing I would say is that I really do think of everybody on my team as a friend, right? I very rarely think of these people in the context of someone being managed or even in the very, I rarely even think of it in terms of leadership. It really is in terms of another human being that is trying to do their best work and accomplish their own career goals and accomplish the company goals. So yeah, I think it really, like you said, it comes down to these are human beings that are trying to do their best and and relating to them as human beings, I think is probably the best way to figure out what their needs are and to help them get their needs met. Yeah, yeah I guess the only commonly used technique that is super effective that hasn't been mentioned on this call yet is anonymous NPS surveys. Sometimes people just need to type something in a form. And usually you won't get much out of it, but when you do, it's usually really important. Yeah. Don't be afraid to work with your HR department to make sure that the, the, that your team is being regularly surveyed. Yeah. And I'll add that it probably takes a lot more effort than we think. I think I rely sometimes on it just coming naturally I'll check in when I feel like it or when I feel great, I will dig a little deeper or I will banter when I feel like it. And if I consider my own strengths and weaknesses as my week progresses, yeah, that's not a great way to do it. So I love that idea of having some system in place or some routine or ritual in place that forms a, a bit of a safety net. Okay, we're going to catch some things as it goes. I also think it's very insightful that we should, I just think the tender moment in this call when we all were like, yeah, it's actually hard to admit my needs to my C-suite. It was something as basic as a, I'm not going to come to work on Monday or I need to take next week off or I'm going to be traveling across the country with my kids to just put our own people's insecurities around bringing their needs to us in that perspective, I think was super valuable to me. Thanks, Chris and Scott, for coming in to filling in our need and want to talk to more people about needs. Appreciate everything everyone shared. And as always, if people want more information around this and they are a forum member, we'll have a document to give some more information on how do you implement this? How, what does it actually look like to integrate needs into your role? And... Thanks for joining us. Thank you for Brittany and Ed for doing this. I really enjoyed having the conversation today. And I think it's a topic that's not talked about enough. So thank you for providing this to our community. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It was really nice talking to you as well. Very good insight. Brittany and Ed, a pleasure as always. But who is it more a pleasure to be with? It's not a competition, Brittany. <laughs> I need to go now. Sorry. She was serious. Who was more fun to talk to? Oh, you don't answer. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot, man. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of CTO Studio. This is a little taste of the many conversations we have inside 7 CTOs. In addition to our peer groups, 7 CTOs members are also part of Slack, where ad hoc issues can be addressed by the larger collective. We also have one to two Zoom calls a week where we go deep on specific challenges like brand new technologies, hiring strategies, people management, and expanding our influence and branding as technology leaders. Also check out 7CTOs.com where we publish our list of events like upcoming retreats and colloquiums in a city near you. 
Applications are always open, so mention CTO Studio when you apply and you'll get a free strategy session with me. Wouldn't that be fun? See you next week.